Section 5 of The Voyage of the Pox, an Allegory, by Dom Bede Cam, OSB. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Mozart Jr. The old routine of life on board the Pox went on unchanged, but now Symphorian, in his white tunic, sat ever by the side of Calixtus, and it were hard to say which of the twain worked at the oar more bravely and more ceaselessly. Ever and anon the oarsmen rested and partook of the same mysterious food, or while others took their turn, raised their fresh young voices in the sweet hymns which cheered them in the midst of toil, for they told of the rest and the reward which was in store. They had still almost half their course to make, when they came in sight of a little green island very fair to look upon. The pox ran up her flag to announce her approach, and from the island came in reply the joyous sounds of silver bells. It was with renewed vigor that our mariners pulled at their oars, for they had been longing for hours to come to it. For here the father told them that out of their company were to be chosen some to receive a power and dignity that was granted but to few. In recompense of their labors they were to be raised to the rank of vicars of the prince, his chosen representatives, gifted with his own powers and charged with the care of the other mariners of his fleet. Up till now they had partaken of the mystic bread, the panis vitae, given to them by their captain, but henceforth they, or at least some of them, would be taught how to make this bread for themselves, and be charged to refresh therewith the fainting and the dying. The sea around the island, whose name was Sacerdotium, was calm and blue, and the sun, which had been obscured, now shone out brightly once more. Amid the ring of the unseen bells, the pox glided into the little lagoon, and the voyagers saw with delight the coral rocks and exquisite verdure of this favored isle which had once been the chosen abode of the prince himself. After the weary voyage it seemed to them verily a portion of that celestial country whither they were bound, but in truth these beauties were but the surroundings of the wondrous tree, Lignum Vitae, planted on the isle long ago by the hands of the prince. This great tree raised its stately head in the middle of the island, and its spreading boughs afforded grateful shade to the weary travellers. It was covered with golden fruit and pure white flowers, and its leaves were for the healing of the nations. All who tasted of the liquid distilled thereof were cured of whatever complaint they might be suffering from. But none could distill this liquid save them alone to whom power was given to be vicars of the prince. And here, beneath those overarching bows, Agathos, Calixtus, and a third named Gaudentius were chosen to be vicars of the prince. Into their trembling hands were placed fruit and leaves plucked by the father from the tree of life. Henceforth they were to guard this sacred treasure, which no hand unconsecrated might touch, and offer it to those who were in need. Thus each of them became the very image and likeness of the merciful prince, who planted this tree to give consolation and strength to weary mariners. And of this fruit was to be made the panis vitae, which should give strength to themselves and their companions in the weary task which yet lay before them. I would you could have seen young Agathos and his companions, as they knelt before the aged father their captain, and received from him this gift and this commission in the prince's name. The calm joy that beamed in their faces was not of earth, and I envied little Theodore when he ran forward to kiss their newly consecrated hands. A great silence fell on our little company, and methought that in their midst there stood the form of one with pierced hands and feet. His hands were raised in blessing and in his breast I saw an open wound from which bright flames were darting forth. But I know not if the mariners saw this wondrous vision, for they had fallen with their faces to the ground. But there came, as it were, a whisper of air which breathed upon them and thrilled into their hearts, 
and there followed a soft sound of music so tender and so sweet that it moved them even to tears, and they knew that this, indeed, was holy ground, and that the prince had not forsaken it. After a little stay upon the fair isle of Sacerdotium, our little company took ship again, and Agathos and his fellows, now leading the way, each with a golden stole crossed about his breast. And so the good ship Pox ploughed her way through the billows, which soon began to grow more fierce as the island was left behind, and the bay of Tribulatio was reached. Still, the way was far before they could hope to reach the perilous straits which led to the blessed haven of Eternitas. Ever and anon they came upon little boats in deadly peril through the rising waters, and then would they exhort the mariners to forsake them ere it was too late, and come and cast in their lot with them. And sometimes these poor men took their kindly counsel, and it was passing sweet to see Agathos or Calixtus tending their wounds or refreshing their hunger with the bread of the strong. At times their route led them hard by cruel and jagged rocks that rose out of the unquiet waters like cruel monsters seeking their destruction. The captain would warn them to redouble their precautions at such times, and although once or twice the keel or the sides of the pox actually scraped against one of these dangerous projections, she and her crew escaped all serious damage. Not so some of the other boats. Around one high shining rock that bore, the captain said, the name of Superbia, I saw a heap of wreckage, and more than one dead body floating. This rock was doubly dangerous, for parts of it stretched out to a great distance a little under the water, and even some who had avoided it, as they thought, struck on these submerged portions and miserably perished. The captain said that it was in fact an extinct volcano, and that it formed the principal height of a long chain of mountains called the Pecata Range, of which seven peaks were lofty enough to rise above the surface of the waves. The pox passed these peaks at a good distance, her crew continually taking soundings to be sure they were in sufficiently deep water. The rocks called Ida and Invidia, twin peaks of great height, were jagged and frightful to look upon, but another, called Impudicitia, was, on the contrary, covered with soft and pleasant verdure, and had an attractive appearance. But the captain warned his crew to keep further off from this rock than from any, for that it was the most dangerous of all, since fearful quicksands lay around it, in which thousands had perished, and there was a strong current which drew heedless mariners onto these fatal sands before they were aware of it. Among these fearful rocks, the boys were saddened by the too frequent sight of floating wreckage. Sometimes, however, they were consoled by being able to rescue some shipwrecked mariner, whom they found clinging to a plank or spar. These they usually sent to the Precepta Dei, after Agathos or one of his companions had cured his wounds and restored him to fresh life with their mystic remedies. The blood-red liquid, penitentia, distilled, as we said, from the leaves of the lignum vitae, never failed to restore such sufferers, even though, when picked up, life had seemed to be extinct. And it was beautiful to see with what zeal and charity the young vicars of the prince fulfilled their sacred office. One or two, however, of these poor shipwrecked mariners, begged to be allowed to stay in the pox, which had already proved their ark of safety. Two, I remember, were called Gregorius and Marianus. They had embarked through ignorance on a vessel which they had thought to be one of the prince's fleet. It was, however, a pirate ship plied by one of his bitterest foes, but cunningly painted and equipped like one of the prince's fleet, in order to deceive the unwary. It was not seaworthy, and it had foundered into the bay of Tribulatio. Its name, they said, was Schisma. Gregorius and Marianus became very useful members of the Pax's crew, and were never tired of expressing their gratitude for their wondrous deliverance. And still the captain steered his gallant bark by the aid of the chart drawn long ago by Benedict, 
and from time to time he told his sons how far they had advanced on their way. The wide and stormy bay of Tribulatio once traversed, they would soon come, he told them, to the narrow and dangerous straits of Mors, which led directly into the haven of Eternitas, of which the waters laved the walls of the golden city. Then would their labors be at an end, then would their joy be full. Yet were the straits most perilous to pass, and even if they passed them safely, as they would if they hearkened to his counsel and commands, yet before they could enter the golden city, they would each have to undergo a strict examination as to health, for none with the slightest ailment or with the least defect could enter therein. All must be clean, too, from stain or defilement, otherwise they would have to stay without till they were thoroughly cleansed and healed. And now the sun was already low in the heavens, and on the horizon I saw a single star, rising, as it were, out of the sea. Look, whispered Agathos, there is the star of the sea. Night is coming on, but we shall be safe while we steer our bark by her pale, sweet light. Let us greet her, brothers, with a song. And over the waters ran the sweetest melody I yet had heard, and methought the words ran somewhat after this fashion. Ave Maristella, Dei Mater Alma, Atque Semper Virgo, Felix Celli Porta. End of section 5